Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Postmortem brain studies of individuals who have had Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, as well as those who did not, provide a unique opportunity to elucidate how these disorders impact the brain. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing Cleveland Clinic's postmortem brain autopsy program and how the program's findings contribute to our understanding of Alzheimer's disease mechanisms and influence clinical care. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Jim Leverance join me for today's conversation. Dr. Leverance is a neurologist, researcher, and director of the Cleveland Clinic Neurological Institute's Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Cleveland, Ohio. Jim, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to talk. So, Jim, as I get older, sadly, I become more interested in what you have to discuss. Uh, But I have to say I'm not ready for your autopsy table yet. Uh, So let's get started uh, with an introduction to the postmortem brain autopsy program. Can you give us an overview of the catalyst for the program and what is involved? Sure. Um, So one thing that we know when we see people with a question of, say, Alzheimer's disease, a dementia as they get older, is we're not as accurate as we'd like to think we are in terms of the actual diagnosis. And particularly when we're doing research around this area, we really want to know what the underlying cause is. And there's a lot of the actual new therapies for things like Alzheimer's disease that are being uh, examined that are really based on findings from autopsy. So, Getting back to that, I think really being more precise in our diagnosis, and and there are reasons we use some of the brain tissue for some of our particular research programs as well. I would say one thing that's happened over the last several years is we've had a number of uh, NIH-funded projects that require an autopsy program to be part of them, and that's uh, something that's really driven us to open this program up. Now, in collaboration with your autopsy program, I understand you also have a biobank or a biorepository. Can you talk about that a little bit? And when did that start? It started actually before the autopsy program, uh, right when I came to the Cleveland Clinic over over eight years ago. One of the areas that I'm really interested in was how can we more precisely diagnose people uh, with memory disorders in the real world, in clinic, uh, not waiting until we have an autopsy, for example. That doesn't do much much good there. So that was really the the purpose of that. And we draw blood, we do some spinal fluid testing. You can include things like genetics and brain imaging as a part of that. Uh, But really trying to, we use the term deep phenotype individuals with memory disorders, really get a feel for what's going on and then ultimately linking that to our autopsy program so we can come back and say, we know that this was Alzheimer's or this was Lewy body disease or frontal dementia, and then link that back to all that information that we had gathered over the previous years. And that really helps us move this field forward. And with the ultimate goal of being able to precisely diagnose what's happening in the brain while someone is alive, as well as having very specific therapies down the line. Mm -hmm. 
So when you study the postmortem brain samples, what are we looking for? What are you finding? Well, it ranges from, we just take a brain weight, for example. How big is the brain? Is this big or small for the particular individual? But what we look for under the microscope are changes that many of us have heard about, the amyloid, the tangles that we see in Alzheimer's disease. I mentioned Lewy bodies is a kind of change that we used to see only in Parkinson's or think we only saw in Parkinson's, but now is linked to a kind of dementia called Lewy body dementia. Changes we see in frontal dementia and, and of course, uh, stroke, vascular disease. One other point I would make is that we're finding as we do these studies in more detail now is that it's actually relatively uncommon for someone to have only Alzheimer's or only Lewy body disease or only stroke. And that as people get older, unfortunately, we have multiple things going on that can cause problems with thinking skills. And both your postmortem uh, program and also the biorepository, is this just a Cleveland Clinic program or is this a citywide program? Well, the Alzheimer's Center program, which is part of this, um, is a citywide program. That's a collaboration between ourselves, Case Western Reserve University, University Hospitals, and actually the VA is becoming involved as well. So this is a citywide program. Mm -hmm. The program for Lewy body disease that we have funded is actually an eight-site program around the country. Um, we're the coordinating center for that, but we're working with a number of investigators that have specialty expertise in that area um, and really bringing, bringing all that, that thinking skill into it, but also allowing for us to recruit participants from a variety of places around the country. So as I'm paying attention to some of the literature out there, I saw some uh, recent exposure on exercise and mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease. And they, they spoke that those that, uh, you know, have frequent exercise, and I guess we can always discuss what that level is. It was somewhere just under 10,000 steps a day, I think, that in patients, they reported increased hippocampal volumes and also improved neurogenesis. Um, with the data that you're collecting, can you look into that? Will you have that type of data available to you? We have some of that data. I would say more specific data we have actually is a collaboration we have with Dr. Steve Rao, who also has an NIH grant to study exercise and, and cognition in older individuals. And he's particularly looking at people who carry genes that increase people's risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so he's, as part of that study, he's really looking very specifically, how does exercise change things like you mentioned the hippocampus, the brain volume, but also cognitive skills. So it really will give us a very specific idea of what kind of exercise is needed. I don't think any of us know exactly what's enough exercise. I think 10,000 steps a day is a good, a good marker. I'd like to say I always get my 10,000 steps in, but doesn't doesn't always happen. So I'm just curious with all the testing that's available for the public these days, you know, people will uh, do a profile and their APOE4 will be uh, affected. Are you seeing patients come to you and want to be involved with your biorepository program based on some type of genetic test that their family gave them at Christmas? It's a great question. Uh, yes, that sometimes happens. I think uh, we probably get a lot more people who come in because they've had a family member who developed dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy body disease, um, and they're worried. Uh, and they want to also not only help the community as a whole, but also have somebody looking at them in a very specific way so that they can be followed over time. And we can determine if something's coming on 
uh, as, as they get older. So in terms of getting back to the autopsy program, do you know the numbers, approximately how many a year uh, you're looking at, how many autopsies are being done in the consortium? For the Lewy Body Consortium, I think we had, we're probably somewhere in the 50, so we're getting about 10 to 12 a year, because mm-hmm. uh, we've been going for about five years now. We do think there'll be, as we increase the number of people participating in the study, the num- those numbers will likely go up. Uh, on the Alzheimer's Center, I would expect similar kind of uh, expectation. And what findings would be especially significant for future research or clinical care with your autopsy study for dementia? I think that the critical thing from my perspective is linking the autopsy results to what we saw while a person was alive and participating in our pre-autopsy studies. So we really like to have people participate, for example, in our Alzheimer's Center, and that moves from people with Alzheimer's, normal elderly controls, people with Lewy body disease, we're very interested in those individuals and linking that information we gather as they're participating in the study on an annual basis to what we see ultimately at autopsy, because that's going to link all that information together so that when I'm in my clinic and I'm seeing somebody with mild symptoms or maybe even when they're not having symptoms yet, their primary care doc, are there tests that we can do to predict their risk and have us intervene at a very early stage? Yeah, it seems like a great opportunity for learning as well, right? I mean, we think clinically somebody has a disorder and then they go to autopsy and it's different. And I I wonder, how do we go back and uh, reteach that? Is there a system for that where we can somehow educate the clinicians involved with the care of that patient? Sure. I I think obviously one way is to, to publish those results in medical journals. The other is to, of course, give people feedback. Um, the physicians, for example, who are taking care of somebody who, who did ultimately come to autopsy. So we do release that information to them, uh, release it to the families as well. So that's the way that we kind of pass that information so people can be more sophisticated. I do think, and it's just my own personal opinion, that at least currently that it is good for people to at least see a specialist once to have a better, more specific diagnostic workup done and uh, an opinion. Doesn't mean that the primary care clinician can't manage this, but having some input on exactly what's going on, as best we can tell, uh, can be useful. So autopsy has been going on for well over 100 years for Mm -hmm. um, various disorders, including Alzheimer's. What are the new technologies, techniques that have uh, become available to enhance uh, the clinical applications? Well, primarily the things that we've been able to develop over the last 20, 30 years, um, and it's, this has been a progression over time, is we have antibodies that we can use um, when we're doing the analysis of the tissue to see if we're seeing changes that we link to specific disease processes. I think most people have heard about amyloid and Alzheimer's disease. We have antibodies that can detect that specific amyloid, and we can see how how dense the the deposition is in the brain. Similarly, in Alzheimer's, we see another chain called tangles that are made up of a protein called tau, spelled T-A-U. And we have antibodies that can pick that up as well. So we can actually very specifically make a pathologic diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Similarly, we have antibodies for the Lewy bodies that we see in Lewy body dementia, as well as Parkinson's disease, changes that we can see in certain kinds of frontotemporal dementia. So we, we have these newer tools now so we can be more precise. As I mentioned at the very beginning, though, 
with these new tools, we're realizing that many people have multiple changes going on simultaneously. So a very common thing is to see both Alzheimer's and Lewy body changes at the same time. So I I know that uh, I'll see patients and they'll have had brain volume studies done with their MRI. Is that correlating with the autopsy studies or are you guys looking at that or has anybody looked at that? No, that is a part of our research studies, actually, is that we do the automated brain volume studies. Um, there is a reasonable correlation between uh, loss of brain volume in certain areas, particularly, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, part of the brain called the hippocampus that's important in putting and storing in new memories, uh, does tend to shrink as the disease goes along. And in that context, um, we we can look at that and say, gee, this increases our, our concern that this might be Alzheimer's. Now, if anybody's been watching the news in the recent past, there's been a lot of excitement about new potential therapies for Alzheimer's, particularly around the amyloid that we see in the brain. We're going to want to use these tools, try to tell us what's the likelihood this person has Alzheimer's disease so we can give them appropriate therapy. These therapies are not as far as we can tell so far, miraculous, but they do seem to be impacting the disease. And uh, we're all very excited about these possibilities. So I understand you have some collaboration as well with the uh, Prion Center at Case. And interestingly, in clinic today, one of the physicians asked me, you know, he was looking at a MRI scan of a patient that had an abnormality, and somebody had done an LP on the patient and sent the CSF off for prions. And they uh, had mentioned to me the tau was quite elevated. And they said, what do you think that that means? And I said, well, I'm going to talk to Dr. Leverance today. Maybe he'll help us with that. But I, I, I said, it's possible, I guess, that uh, it could be a nonspecific finding of just having an abnormality in the brain that you could see the tau elevated. I guess it's also possible that it could represent that they have an underlying disorder unrelated to the lesion that's in the brain uh, of a degenerative disorder. But uh, thoughts on that? Sure. So we tend to see, as you mentioned, tau is to some degree a nonspecific finding. Uh, it generally indicates some sort of brain injury or ongoing what we would call neurodegenerative process. Uh, there are certain kinds of neurodegenerative diseases that tend to cause um, that tau to go really quite elevated, and certainly prion disease is one of those. Thankfully, we actually have a specific test now um, called RT-QUIC, uh, where you can actually measure the aggregated prion protein that causes prion disease or mad cow disease, as many people know it. And we used to depend a lot on the tau, total tau, sort of as an indicator, but not a direct diagnostic. But now uh, we have that specific RT-QUIC. So somebody, let's say, who has a normal or doesn't have an RT-QUIC for prion positive, but has an elevated tau, probably has something going on, but it probably is not due to prion disease. So can you talk to us a little more about your collaboration with the prion center and how that's interacting with your uh, Alzheimer's study? Sure. I, I, you never know, right, as you move along, how things can become very important. But what we have found at that same technique that allows us to measure aggregated prion protein, um, particularly in the spinal fluid, allows us to see some of the aggregated proteins we link to other diseases. So one area that I'm particularly interested in and collaborating with uh, the prion center on is measuring synuclein, the protein that's linked to Lewy bodies and in, in dementia with Lewy bodies and Parkinson's disease. 
So using the exact same technique to determine if there are aggregates of these synuclein proteins linked to Lewy body disease actually look like they're going to work very well. So it is an opportunity to use a similar technique for a another diagnostic category. And prion disease is relatively rare, important, but relatively rare. Lewy body disease, you know, we think that there's almost 1.5 million Americans with that in, a, in various forms. So very common, common problem. So other future directions of your program, where do you see it going? Well, um, thankfully, actually, the uh, as, as you probably know, the government, the U.S. government, especially NIH, has made um, neurodegenerative disease of aging or aging-related memory disorders a high priority. They've given this a bypass budget. So we've been very successful with grant funding over the last couple of years, and now we really need to get the work done. Most of my work is what I would call patient-based or participant-based. So we're really looking forward to to looking at people over time, both with normal aging and with these neurodegenerative processes, to to figure out what's going on over time, getting better diagnosis and more accurate diagnosis at the same time that we're hopefully getting some of these new therapies coming out that are what we would call disease-modifying, not just symptom-modifying, but disease-modifying. You know, I was also reading today that, uh, you know, with the graying of the baby boomer population and the importance of neurologists, that we've got a big deficit. Uh, and they were talking about how many neurologists we're going to be short of in the next uh, 10 or 15 years. So clearly the work that you're doing is very important. Uh, what's the answer for that? How are we going to look after all these patients with neurodegenerative disorders? Well, I think there are people out there who have expertise that we can call on, geriatricians, for example. In, in our own group here at the Cleveland Clinic, we have something we call the Center for Brain Health. And we have a number of different types of clinicians. We have neurologists, we have geriatricians, we have a geriatric psychiatrist, a sleep specialist, um, as well as a group of advanced practice clinicians, such as uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. And we work as a group together to really help handle the, the load uh, that we see. And as you might imagine, we see a lot of people that are concerned about their memory or family members concerned about someone in their family with memory loss. Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, multidisciplinary group that you have going on and really sort of shows where we need to move with the field, that it's not just one individual that can look after these patients, but individuals from different disciplines that will bring different skill sets uh, to help manage them because there's just the reality is there's just not enough neurologists to look after them. So uh, I'm thankful to hear that, as they say, as, as I age. Well, again, uh, yeah, I'm aging as well, so we're all a little bit worried. <laughs> Jim, I really appreciate the information you've shared with us today. Uh, any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us? You know, I think that um, part of a comprehensive research and clinical program, no one data point does it all, no one test. But linking the clinical and the pathological changes together are quite powerful. Well, Jim, thank you for joining us today. This is incredibly interesting work, and I uh, applaud your efforts in this area, and I look forward to following your research in the years to come. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me again. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. 
or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLE Clinic MD, all one word. And thank you for listening.